Hey everyone, it's Michelle Lee, Editor-in-Chief of Allure, with a brand new season of the Allure Podcast. I'm so excited to have Jonathan Van Ness as our guest today. We recorded this episode a few days after Jonathan's book, Over the Top, came out, in which he opens up about a lot of things, like childhood sexual abuse, being HIV positive, battling with drug abuse, and binge eating. His resilience and confidence through it all are so inspiring. You, of course, know him as the grooming expert on Queer Eye, where he is a beacon of light and positivity and truly helps people recognize the beauty in themselves. He is a wonderfully multi-layered, thoughtful person who is a staunch advocate for LGBTQ rights and has a deep pool of curiosity and knowledge about so many things, as anyone who's listened to his podcast, Getting Curious, knows. We got a chance to talk about everything from Miss America to Janet Reno to toxic masculinity and his amazing skincare routine. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Van Ness. All right. I'm so excited to have Jonathan Van Ness here. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. I definitely have been thinking about you a lot in the past couple of days because I think that on the one hand, obviously, like you have this amazing, huge week of like just revelations and, and going public saying that you're HIV positive where I feel like it must feel like this huge weight lifted off of you, but it's also, I imagine, very emotional. Are you just exhausted right now? I mean, I don't know if I'm necessarily exhausted because of the stuff that I'm talking about or just because it's like a really busy time in my life. And I've like just wrapped up 10 weeks of shooting in Philadelphia for season five of Queer Eye and then like came back to New York and then in, did like the Creative Arts Emmys. And then I was on tour in Toronto and Las Vegas and then immediately back to New York for two days. And then my book came out. So it's like, I think I'm a little bit tired just from the pace that I've been keeping up with. Also, you know, in my very jokingly, I say robust dating life in New York City. I had a very nice boy give me some nice flowers and I haven't been given flowers in real life for a long time. And so I got these really nice flowers two days ago given to me. And then I came home yesterday from like a really long day of press before going to my like second press event, which was like a moderated discussion with like a lot of people. And my cat had like a yellow face and I was like, oh, that's cute. So I made like a little Harry Larry weather corner from it. And then the DM started flooding in about like Lily toxicity and cats and it was a bouquet of lilies that I'd been given. And after owning cats or, you know, having cats for as long as I've had, like, I never knew that lilies are toxic to cats. So, like, on the way to the thing, like, I had to basically push this one out of the car. And she ran home um, with my other friend, Alex. And they took, like, all four cats to the vet. And Harry Larry is still in the vet. And he has to stay under observation for, like, 48 hours. Because no. lily toxicity is apparently, like, something really, really dangerous to cats. And it can cause, like, like acute liver failure. And they, they really can... like, a charcoal drink or something? If his symptoms had gotten worse, they were going to give Larry charcoal, but not the kittens because they are too small. But we're pretty sure the kittens weren't exposed and it was only Harry Larry. So he just has one more night. And to be totally fair, it's been difficult talking about these things, but actually like why I was really feeling so emotional in the last 24 hours, like I was prepared to deal with all of this stuff. I just think that my window for tolerance of being able to deal with stuff right now this week is a little bit less than normal. And having like a toxic Lily scare with my baby is just kind of made me a little emotion. Oh my God. It's Sorry okay. for that whole story. But yes, the, the cat thing has made me more emotional than typical. I'm actually very much at peace and process my HIV diagnosis. And, and you know, my HIV infection is, does not make me cry on a daily basis. I think that some of the events that maybe led up to it, and I think that some of the trauma that I endured as a child, like has been difficult and interesting maybe to talk about because I'm used to more talking about like, makeovers and, you know, stuff on getting curious, which is, can be more challenging topics, but it's definitely more challenging when they're so personal yeah. as they've been. So thank you so much for asking. I am totally doing okay. I love your office. It's a magical playland of Everyone always talks about Tatcha so and Byredo <laughs> and like beautiful companies I love. 
So really good herbivores, love so much. You really have, I'm, I don't know why I'm surprised. I'm, I'm not. It you is have, a regular smorgasbord of beauty products. Following your Instagram, I know how gorgeous your beauty game is. Absolutely. I love it. Thank yes. you. So I do actually want to talk about beauty since it's the Allure podcast. Yes. So we love looking at people's lives through the lens of beauty. And I feel like after reading your book, like I feel like you have such an interesting beauty related story too, that from a young age, you knew that you wanted to be a cosmetologist. Yes. You have written the book. What was your first memory of beauty? Well, I think one of the really first queer ones is like beauty pageants and Miss Alabama, when she won Miss America, she was like the first deaf woman to win Miss America ever. And she was a ballet dancer and she danced to to feeling the vibrations through the floor of her ballet shoes. And she was so fierce. And I remember her, she was just like stunningly beautiful. And she was so incredible. And just Miss America in general, just like really gave me just gave me life like that talent competition. I was just like, Oh my gosh, like the volume on these dresses, the volume on these sleeves, the gowns obsessed. So I think that was like the first time where I was like, huh, how do we get our hair to stand up like this? <laughs> um, it is, that was amazing. Was there someone at that time who was just like the epitome of beauty to you? Was it Miss America? Okay. You're going to like really laugh. I feel like I'm going to bring the house down with this one. My style icon at that age who I just really could not get enough of was Miss Janet Reno. I was obsessed with those shoulder pads, the side sweat fringe, the power suits. I didn't understand her politics, of course, because I was like seven. And I didn't know what Waco was until like seven years ago. But, oh my God, the power suits. I, she was a power. I loved, those, I loved that, but she reminded me of my mom and I was here for her. <laughs> so yeah, I know that was like random, but I really, I really, really vibing her style. That's amazing. Was that in like grade school? Yeah, and Madeline Albright. Now, I, think, I just really feel like Bill Clinton had like a great cabinet. This is a great cabinet, like Pierce Ladies. I, I really liked her brooches. No, I was in elementary school. Okay, amazing. So I know you've been really open about being bullied when you were a kid. Looking back at that, because I was also bullied in middle school. How do you, when you look back, like how do you think that influenced who you are today? I think that being able to use comedy as a means of like processing my pain was something that like I learned how to do very early. And I think that I had to spend a lot of time alone or just surrounded by people that like were mean to me. So like being able to entertain myself was like a really important thing to do. So I think that like really being able to like entertain myself, I think that's really like what I got from, from a lot of that. I also think that I got like some other things, but if I'm trying to be positive, I feel like that's what the, some of like the positive things from my bullying I I got. I wrote down this line from your book because I've loved it so much. No matter how ugly everything had gotten, I was still convinced I could find a way to make it gorgeous. And love that line so much because I feel like it says so much about you too. Where do you think that this resilience comes in? Like, where does it come from? Well, when you're born wanting to wear evening gowns and like really figure out like how you can be Christy Yamaguchi when you're four in a small rural Midwestern town, I think I'm very used to like just not fitting into what I was meant to fit into being born, like looking how I look like I was meant to be one way. And I just was not that way and really have never been the way that I think it was perceived that I was going to be. So I'm, I'm a mom. <sighs> My husband and I talk about this all the time of like how to build resilience in kids. Cause like sometimes they can bounce back really easily. But then also sometimes it's like one little thing happens and they're like crushed for the entire day. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine like raising like literal people. Good luck. Let me know how it goes. I will <laughs> keep following you on Instagram and like see how it's going from afar. I've got another one. Um, oh my gosh. Good one congratulations. <laughs> That's so amazing. I think that for me though, I just like the reason I got so resilient is because just like from my inception, 
I was not really cut out for a lot of the things that I think that I really wanted to do. Like my gymnastics coach telling me that like, you know, she's never met anyone with less natural ability, learn how to tumble. I got over on sheer determination. And I think that it's like the things that I've really wanted, like I really had to like will and like create them and kind of find a way to make them happen. Even when it didn't seem like there was a way for me to make it happen. So I just, you, if you want to be resilient, you have to be in resilient positions yeah. or be in, be in situations that require resilience. Yeah. So maybe like with kids, you know, like my mom and dad, you know, they did a lot of amazing things. I'll tell you this. They didn't rescue me very much. They let me like fall on my ass. Like when I was like ready to leave school early, when I was ready to do a talent show, when I was ready to like wear monochromatic, like skin tight, you know, suits to school with like, you know, thigh or like big tall Doc Martens. Like they let me figure it out. Yeah. You know, I think like, that's so big. Cause I think that the gut reaction now, like for all parents is like, you have to rescue your kid. And we totally did it. Like when our kids were toddlers too, that if they fall, you like make this reaction like, Oh my God, are you okay? And then you learn that it's like they they react based on how, how you're reacting to. So that's really good advice. Ah, yay. And maybe don't take any other parenting advice from me. Cause like, I honestly don't know. Like I really, <laughs> my cat ate lilies like oh. last night. I, well, who knew? Yeah, I didn't know that. But now I do. Yeah. yeah. Now, now we all know. Uh, Oh, and so, also as long as I'm on the subject, poinsettias. Turns out poinsettias yes, are also... I did know that yes. for dogs And see, also. me too. I yeah. fucking knew the poinsettia thing, but no one's talking about Lily. Yeah, well, so we have two cats also. You do? And they chew everything. Okay, not to, like, interrupt you, and it's going to happen a lot because our podcast, or your podcast is... Yeah. I never see your cats on your Instagram. Are they not I, on your you Insta know, stories? I put them on my Insta stories before. I haven't done like a full post. On I them. feel like I need more. Not that you asked, but you, you know what? I would really, I really love cat content. I love it from everyone who posts it. Your nail content's next level. Your your the reviews are that I just, I want to please. Okay, maybe I'll do because I do this thing. Everything is nail art props, so maybe I'll hold the cats and like, yes, show my nails. Maybe on Saturdays. Okay, <laughs> for Catterday. <laughs> I love that. So my, my cats are Bowie, because um, Bowie has one blue eye and one green eye. Oh, my gosh. Bowie. Like Sandra Bullock's love interest in Hope Floats. Yes, yes, yes. And then the other one is Atari, because Atari had, like, a little gray symbol, like an Atari symbol on her head. Love. Yes. So I will I will take your advice and share. Thank <laughs> you. So, again, like, we talk about kind of all-over appearance and, and body and everything is into that, too. In the book, and I think before that, too, you talked about binge eating. How, when you look back on your life, has your relationship to your body evolved? Well, I think like a lot of things I used to like kind of panic and react to like, you know, feeling like I needed to do a whole bunch of work to like make myself conform or fit into like what I thought I, you know, was supposed to be like. So I was like really into veganism when I was like 22 to 26. And I, first of all, I read Skinny Bitch was an incredible book. Then I realized like the social environmental implications, but the thing that was really driving it more than that was like my desire to be like loved and accepted by men. So I thought I needed to be skinnier and like lose weight. So I did. And I think that what I really realized from all of that is that like, and that isn't the only thing I think that I've been like that in gender expression as well. I think that like, I thought I was trying to like conform to a more like traditional, like mask for mask gay in a lot of my early twenties, which is hilarious because it is just not my truth, but it's like really like, it was like my reaction, like speaking of kids, like they react to like what other people are doing. It was really like my reaction to like the very monotonous, lame. Cause I mean, look, our ideas of beauty, a lot of times on like, you know, the mainstream media are very narrow and very like short-sighted and very like, you know, Adonis looking men and like a certain type. We, we talk about that a lot. I think, especially from a female oriented perspective, we talk about body shaming, body positivity and, and what the female gender, you know, 
encounters in that realm. I think in the male side, that is not talked about quite as much. And I know that I was severely impacted by that, like my whole life, you know, eating disorders, you know, weird relationship with food for sure. But I think what really has changed the most is that like, I'm aware of like the unrealistic beauty expectations that are like forced out of our throats and that they always have been and how narrow our ideas of beauty are. And like, really it's realizing that like this system doesn't fit me. Like it's not that I don't fit the system. Like I don't see the system like that. So I just, I just have to take myself out of that a little bit and I can still play and I can still have fun and like in my ideas of beauty, but it's not really like for other people. Yeah. Like how I, how I experience you. I mean, the question is like, I love the question, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. I mean, it's something I've thought about a lot is like working in media for the past like 20 something years. Like when I first started out in magazines, just understanding like the impact that women's magazines had specifically on like women's bodies. Because for sure, it's like I grew up in the time of like heroin chic, right? Like, yeah. it's like the body was Kate Moss. Everyone had to look like that. That I'm happy now that things are changing, that it's like, especially with social media and stuff, you can see so much more that's like people, I hope, understand what's real and not real. I think we are totally, totally starting to get there. Like, I feel like the ball is totally rolling. But you know what else I feel like happens sometimes? I feel like sometimes when we really do start to accomplish change, the other side of it almost starts to like rattle harder I kind of notice sometimes it's like there are still like corners of the industry where it's very much like wanting to be really, really super sizest and really, really super, you know, not friendly to all sorts of anything that it, that falls outside of like what that particular organization group, whatever thinks that, you know, you should be looking like yeah. into whatever. It's for sure gotten more complicated for men, I think, in the past couple of years, just because it's like there is this major prevalence of seeing like the super ripped guys. And it's like. I don't think that the average person understands like what you have to go through actually to do that, that it's like you've completely changed your diet. You're like not eating any carbs, like just the amount that you actually have to work out to like get that lean. Yeah. I mean, you're like working. I mean, it's like, that is a full-time job in and of itself. Yeah. Like that bodybuilding physique is that is like art. It is like a whole thing. It is like, that is your job. Yeah. And people who that's not their full-time job, I mean, they're up at four in the morning. They are going to work out like afterwards. And do I want to be one of those people that has like plastic bags full of chicken, sweet potato and broccoli everywhere I go? Like no shame if that's like your meal prep game and like go for it. But like, I think I just like, that was really how I, my relationship with my body changes that I realized like, you know, like the system was rigged from the get go. Well, I feel like also watching you on Queer Eye, I feel like your whole message of Like, I think it's something that people don't really understand in traditional makeovers is that people have thought of beauty as being like a shallow thing that if you get a makeover, you're changing somebody to be something that they're actually not. And I love your take on it because it's like you're helping them find what's beautiful about themselves already and then being kind of like the best part of that. Yeah. Let's just like emphasize it a little bit. Yeah, It's kind of like with hair color because it's like really we're like emphasizing something like, you know, making that gorgeous red redder or... If you feel like, ew, I'm having some like unwanted red tones and I wish that I could be a little bit more like neutral, then we're like counterbalancing that. You know, we're just moving a little teensy weensy bit because everyone's like really gorge. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so fast forwarding, you've got Day of Thrones, you've got your podcast, which I am obsessed with. You are? So good. I you have to come. come. Oh, yes, I just oh. listened to the Bill Nye episode. Oh. Plan- I'm <laughs> almost done with the Planned Parenthood one, which is so good. It's so good. Oh my God, I'm always like surprised by when I people who I respect and like look up to them professionally when they like listen to my things I'm like oh my god it's so like weird to be out kind of like yes you have to come I I actually reference your podcast all the time because I just think that the concept of it is also brilliant that it's like people could very easily peg you because they know you from queer eye as like 
oh, he's going to talk about like hair and grooming and stuff. But it's like, we are all such multi-layered people that we're all curious about like any number of things. Yeah. Got to ask. Because if you don't ask, you will never know. Exactly. Okay. So flashboarding then, you've got Game of Thrones, you've got podcast, you've got Queer Eye now. On Queer Eye, I feel like one of the big topics that's been coming up a lot has been toxic masculinity, right? And I think even on like the first episode, it was talked about like toxic masculinity. Everyone's kind of throwing it around as a term, but like what does toxic masculinity mean to you? Like how would you define it? So basically like what toxic masculinity is that is that because men are not taught how to be sensitive, learn about empathy, sympathy, or really expressing their sensitivity, it's kept inside. And when we keep all of our emotions inside it, and you don't acknowledge them, it bubbles up and it lashes out in all sorts of ways because you weren't allowed to like process your feelings because men and women all have feelings, you know, like masculinity and femininity, like they all emote like all sorts of different feelings associated with both of them. If a man said in the open, well, I don't look like Clark Gable. Like I have love handles and like my stomach and torso doesn't look like his. Like I want to look like that. His male friends would laugh him out of the room. Men aren't allowed to express insecurity or desire to look like other men or they're gay or they're, you know, feminine or they're whatever. So it's this fear if you expressed yourself or it's actually, you know, some, a lot of times it's not a fear. It's like the reality that a lot of men don't express themselves. And because they can't express themselves because they've never been taught by their fathers or their fathers or their fathers or culture or like, you know, anywhere, all of this toxic, unexpressed masculinity is like stored up in you. And then it lashes out in all sorts of ways. Addiction, abuse, neglect, la, 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 all these things. Donald fucking like Trump like, for crying out loud. Exactly. Now I feel like it's manifesting itself like so negatively on like, reddit and like 4chan you know what i mean it's like then it's sort of like it feeds into itself because of like online culture too yeah how do you think we fix that as a culture is it just modeling by example is it talking about it like what'll fix it well i think just like you know people are multi-layered like multi-faceted like multi-layered situations i think that the problem of toxic masculinity is as well and there is no one simple solution like in therapy my therapist is always telling me like what's the next right decision I think, you know, as parents, there is a really great way that you can instill, you know, a breakdown of the idea of toxic masculinity, which is really, when you think about that, it's shame. What is underneath toxic masculinity is shame, which is what we're talking about in my book. Like, if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me anymore. So, and, you know, that's not true. Like, men can be sensitive. Boys can cry. Boys can emote. Boys can have body image issues. Boys can have eating disorders. Boys can want to be figure skaters and still want to shove their face in a, you know, pile of titties you know, and vaginas. But that's another thing. Like little boys want to dance. We just saw a couple weeks ago. This is how toxic masculinity affects women yeah. is when you have people like Lara Spencer. And she's a great person. There's nothing wrong with her. She, I don't think she really meant to do what she did. But that is such a classic great way to see that toxic masculinity is alive and well because little boys, when they want to do a dance class, they're made fun of. Yeah. When little boys want to play with makeup, then they're automatically gay. It's good the fact that a lot of people called it out and then it's sort of like... No, for sure. But I'm just saying that that issue speaks to a a greater issue, which is that like that idea of toxic masculinity and what little boys are meant to do and what little girls are meant to do and like what we'll poke fun at and what we won't, that harbors and fosters more toxic masculinity. So I think as parents have a really important role to play in it. And I also think that women have a really important part to play in toxic masculinity because until men can speak about their issues with body image freely, with questions about femininity freely, like, you know, out in the open until it's seen as acceptable. Because if you're a woman and your man says, God, honey, like, why don't I look like him or whatever? And then if you go make fun of your husband to your friends, like, God, my husband's being a little bitch about his body and whatever, which I have heard women in my chair engage in rampant toxic masculinity against their partners. 
So, you know, don't throw stones, I think is another thing. And it's kind of like white privilege, you know, if you're seeing your white counterparts engage in white privilege behind closed doors and engaging in racism, it's your job as a white person to use your white privilege to let them know why that's so fucked up. And I think that, you know, it's really important for everyone. Everyone has a stake and a reason to want to prevent toxic masculinity when your sons, when your fathers, when your boyfriends, when your husbands open up about a sensitivity or open up about a body image issue or something that is hurting them or plaguing them or making them feel any kind of way, don't dismiss it. Treat them the way you would want to be treated. And obviously, you know, it is really difficult. Like, and I'm not saying that like, yes, feminism, of (laughs) course, like, of course, like it has always been more structured for men to be powerful. But I think that that structure kind of, we have to like pull the plug out of that somewhere. And I think a lot of times women can unknowingly feed that toxic masculinity structure. I feel like women's like gut reaction is is to be like snarky about things. Yeah. So I just saw on your uh, build interview that you were doing that you just endorsed Elizabeth. I did. What I love so much is that I feel like you're not afraid to go there politically and to be open about it. Cause I think that a lot of people when they're in the public eye are sort of nervous about doing that. Okay. So I feel like on Queer Eye, a lot of it has been you all going to the red States, right. To, try and like change people's perceptions. This is something I've been thinking about a lot because there are certain people in my life, like older relatives and stuff who are Trump supporters. And I sometimes wonder, can everyone's mind be changed? Like, do you feel like now going through what you've been through with Queer Eye and stuff, and like you've literally, you've seen people being capable of change. Like, do you feel like everyone's capable of change? I do. I do think that people are capable of change, but you know, I keep coming back to the question of like the 2016 election of like, do we try to change Trump supporters' minds or do we take like in the instance of Philadelphia that had over 100,000 registers not show up to vote on in 2016, which is way more than what Donald Trump won that state by? It's like, do we try to really get that coalition of people? Because I mean, we have like really low voter turnouts, like under 50%. So we try to reach out to the people that aren't voting, period. Or do we try to swing Trump supporters? I think that like everything else we're saying, it's multifaceted, it's layered. I think that there's really smart approaches in both to try to sway swing voters and try to incentivize people who have not been a part of the political process previously to get involved this time. So I think that like both are good. And and as far as people being capable of change, I do think that people are are capable of change. There are people in my personal life, close family friends that I know are also Trump supporters. And I have to be honest with you over the last two and three years of their continued Trump support and the conversations that we have had around it, there have been boundaries where I've had to say, no, you can't stay in my house. Yeah. Like, you know, three years ago, if I would have had, you know, like an extra bedroom for you to stay in, which is hilarious because I wouldn't have, but if I would have had an extra bedroom, I would have, of course, would have welcomed these people into my home. Yeah. Now that's not the case. I know. I am feeling the same way about certain people. In certain cases, it's sort of like, I mean, I'll still be your friend. (laughs) No, but but those people, I actually don't do that. Like I do talk to people and and those people were like, I know not to talk about, I will talk to you about it. And if you're friends with my family or I have to be around you, I will be around you. If I'm getting paid to be on a TV show, I'll cut your hair. You know, I'll, I'll have a conversation with you, but am I going to welcome you with open arms, like knowing and, and really try to like engage with you on that level? Probably not yeah. um, because I do have to set that boundary, but I, I will meet people who I know don't agree with me and I will have conversations with them. But if I've tried to have meaningful conversations with someone and I'm being met with consistent intolerance and consistent refusal to understand how your political support of this person could be a direct threat to my right to dream, my right to exist, then, you know, I have to set that personal boundary now. So I feel like that has like kind of changed. So, but I do think that people are capable of change. I'll also tell you, 
my father did vote for Gary Johnson in 2016 because I did cuss him out 300 days of the 365 days of the year. And I really did like come for him every day, day in and day out to the point where he was like, I won't talk to you if you can be talking about politics. I was like, you better change your motherfucking number then. Because <laughs> Donald Trump doesn't need another motherfucking vote in Missouri. Do you, do you so, think that you were able to change his mind away from Trump or was it more sort of like, I just want to get Jonathan off my back? <laughs> no, I think that he really, I think he made meaningful strides on realizing like why his supporting Donald Trump with an HIV positive gay child was such an affront yeah. and why I was so moved to like nausea by his callous lack of understanding for how that would affect me so deeply. Yeah. And I will tell you this as well. Now he is completely aware of how deeply it affects me. And I'll show you another thing. This is a picture of my dad at Pride in Columbia, Missouri, where he lives, wearing a Yes Queen shirt with my stepmom. And he is someone who I don't think would vote for an independent candidate in the next oh election. I, I do him. think that he, I do think that his political views have changed from my incessant vitriolic rage that I have spit at my dad, which I wouldn't do it a stranger, but my dad, you know, diddled in my mom so like um <laughs> we're the same dna so you know you can come at your parent like that sometimes if, it, yeah. if it's an election i feel like it's... well for sure and then you know that it's like you ultimately know that it's like a reasonable person and like that's the thing that drives you crazy and i know enough quote-unquote reasonable people who i'm like what are you thinking it is it's crazy okay so pivoting away from that yes. i was surprised in the book that you referred to yourself as an introvert like, I feel like it's not at all like what your persona is. Do you feel like, I mean, obviously this week as we were talking about, you're like kind of always on. And now that, like, I remember watching the video of when you and Sophie Turner saw each other and like, I feel like everyone, and I, I feel the same way. I was telling someone outside before, I feel like I know you. And I feel like a lot of people probably feel that way because you're in the public eye, but also you're such a beloved person. And in a way, it's like after watching like the last season of Queer Eye too, it's like, Everyone kind of wants a Jonathan in their lives to bring around and to make them feel more confident. Like, do you feel a lot of pressure to always be on? I do a little bit. I do, but I think, so like growing up, I like really hated being alone. Like I always would like call a bunch of friends and like, I'd be like, you want to go to the mall? I want to go to a movie? Like I want to, like let's hang out. Like I can't be alone. Like what are we doing? Where are we going? What are we seeing? Like I, like I could not be alone. And I, the thought of being alone made me feel like it was like a failure somehow. And that like I had no friends and that no one wanted to be around me. So the thought of like spending a weekend alone or getting to like a Friday with no plans that night, like growing up was like this horrifying, like ordeal. And also, like, in my 20s, I feel like I had that as well, where it was, like, I worked all the time, and I was, like, a small business owner, like, trying to build a clientele in whatever city I was living in. And if it got to be, like, a Friday or Saturday night, and, like, no one wanted to go out, I was, like, well, I'm finally, like, old enough to go out. Like, what? Like, why don't I have plans for, like, you know, weeks at a time? And then it's weird, because, like, I I was moving a lot. I think anytime you move to different cities, it's, like, hard to meet, like, a social network anyhow. But I would always end up making friends, and I would always have, you know, people that I could, like, become you know, close with, but like, it was weird because that need to be around people actually kind of ended up driving me crazy because through that fear and through all of that hard work of like getting myself out of Quincy, getting, you know, my cosmetology license, becoming a self-sufficient hairdresser, all of a sudden, like all of the creativity and love that I was giving to my clients, like all day, day in and day out. And maybe the therapy that I've been doing for years and like that I've been seeing like the hard work that I was doing in my life, like bear fruit. I was like, oh, actually, I, I do like being alone. I actually need to have, like, a Friday night alone. Like, I don't want plans on a Friday night because if I go out on Friday night, like, I can't really show up to work on Saturday morning and be there for my clients and listen to all of the crazy different stories that I'm going to have to hear today while mixing their color, while figuring out, like, is this person 
going through something or do they really want fringe? Like when's this next person going to come? Are they really 45 minutes late right now for their first appointment? It's like, it's so hard to like balance your schedule and like figure it out when you're in, a, in the service industry, like as a hairdresser. I forgot what I was saying again. So if you're home alone. Oh yeah. So I need to be a day. Like what do you, what do you do for self-care? Like are I'm gonna, you watching TV? Are you meditating? I wake up and I meditate for like five to seven minutes. That's good for you. Then I, that's like a daily thing. Then if I didn't have to work, I would like make a gorgeous coffee. I would dance around to it like with or without filming it on Instagram. Like that would happen. Then I would, if I had a day off, I would like go to figure skating. Well, first I would go to gymnastics because I found this place where I can do gymnastics like in the morning. So I would go there. Then I would go skate. Then I would come home and I would lay with my cats. Then after laying with my cats for like two or three hours under the gravity blanket in silence, I would. It was a gravity. Oh my God. It's this like weighted blanket that just, oh my God. I would just really. It was like a hug. Yes. Later that and play with my cats. Then I would like watch British Baking Challenge and be able to like. Yes, and then I would, like, get food to, like, make, like, my own gorgeous baked goods, like, while watching British Baking Challenge, and just, you know, really hang out at home, maybe take a little walk that afternoon, maybe have, like, a little din-din, but if I've been working as much in this daydream as much as I have been, then, like, absolutely I'm not leaving my house after I work out in the morning, and I would just, like, really have fun with my cats at night. Yeah, I love to spend time alone at home, I love to, like, because also, like, I really do leave it on the dance floor, like, whether it was doing hair full time or doing all the stuff that I get to do related to queer eye being successful. Like I love my jobs. I've always loved getting to do the things that I do. And I, I learned this thing about myself where if I'm not passionate and interested in the thing that I'm doing anyway, I really don't want to do it. Um, it's like, Ugh, I don't want to do it. And I feel like I kind of paid my dues doing shit that I don't want to do. So now it's like, I really, but also that's an important thing. If you're young, listening to this and let me repeat this. I paid my dues doing stuff. Exactly. I don't want to do I really did. Yeah. I mean, like, I was an assistant for, like, four years. Because I feel like some people are like, how did you do it? Like, it's like, a lot of these kids these days, they don't want to work very hard. Super impatient. <laughs> and, yeah, and, like, I mean, you got to spend a couple years hearing some no's before you can figure out how to get your yes. So, uh, you know, like, my yes did not happen until I was 30. And that was from, like, doing a lot of work. Yeah. Do you yeah. think of skincare as self-care? Yes. You? On your like day off or, or even just like on a regular day, like what do you consider? Like, do you do like a sheet mask? Do you have like a whole skincare routine? Sheet masks I do if I like did not do my normal, like, okay, let's on the dance floor. And like I like was at home at seven o'clock at night, like hanging out with my cats. Like that was more of like, oh my God, it was like the creative arts, like Emmys and then like the governor's ball. And like maybe like the champagne was speaking to me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I need the, that's when I'll do a sheet mask. On a daily routine, I will do eye patches. Mm-hmm. That is something that I do will. Do you have a favorite eye patch? I do love those Thomas Roth gorgeous oh, eye patches. So I also like the Joanna Vargas ones that are individual, but. So I love the Peter Thomas Roth ones. <laughs> and um, I also love like cold spoons with like serum on them. Because sometimes have when I feel. I've seen um, they're called ice I love those I gloves. I those. They're so good. So gorgeous. Yeah. I love those. But basically my daily like self-care skin routine would be like shower, cleanse in the shower, get out of the shower. My gorgeous serum, which lately I'm really into the plant-based retinol one by Biosans. Mm-hmm. Um, I use that. And then I do the squalene plus marine algae eye cream. It's so funny. Ever since I started working with Biosans, like I, not because I have to, I just like, at first I was like, oh my God, like, oh, I already love them anyway, like a few things. But then once I started doing a partnership with them, I was like, oh, well, let me just try this and let me try that. Let me try. And now because like, there's no fragrance in any of it. And my psoriasis like really doesn't like fragrance. Like I just kind of like became, and now like when I do other things, like if I'm doing like an allure moment or like a more, like a moment with other people, they're like, what do you like? And I'm like, Biosense this, Biosense that. And they're like, no, really? Like, what? like afterwards, <laughs> I'm like, no, seriously, I really did turn into like a Biosense queen. Now the only things that I use that aren't Biosense is this Alginist color correcting, like blurring primer, which I love. 
Then I use this Cover FX concealer, which I love because it's my perfect color. So I do do like a little like, so serum, eye cream. Then over that, I do the Omega Plus Repair Cream or the Squalane Plus Omega Repair Cream is like like two thirds. Mm-hmm. Then like a half of my remaining one third, I do the blurring primer and then like a dot of the concealer. Is like, so I mix that together as like my homemade BB cream. And do you just put it on the fingers? Yeah, I put it on with my fingers everywhere. Sometimes I'll do my artiste brushes if, because I don't know what it is. There's sometimes where it's like if it's too humid, my fingers won't press it into my skin. So like I need the brush to like deliver the product smoothly. the artiste brush, like the round one that has I like the, like. I do that on like my body. I do the one that's more like spoon sized yeah. on my face. I put that everywhere. And then I go back with that same cover effects concealer. And I put that like on my under eye and like the, this triangle region. Then if I'm on camera, then I will do a little bit of bronzer on my edges just to kind of really bring that focus in on my face. And where I do you do your own makeup? I do. Oh, okay. But I get touched up sometimes like, cause we, we usually will have a makeup artist. So I, I get like, I need touch ups. Like yeah. if my hair is like getting frizzy or if I'm like, you know, really, really sweating, like but usually I'd show up to set, like, ready to go. Yeah. Okay, wait. So I need your hair secrets also, because I feel like I just very specifically have this, like, image of, like, the hair flip. And, like, you have amazing <sighs> Thank hair. You. Tell, tell me all your secrets. My biggest, like, advice for people, if you want to have, like, hair that just behaves better, just, like, not overwashing, which I'm sure you've heard that 10 million times. Well, that's controversial now, because I feel like now I've heard more and more people be, like, no, 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 wash your hair every day. So we've actually been talking about it here. That it's- I don't, I don't, I disagree because are, we know that our hair is very similar to fabric, right? If you look at like fabric in your hair, it's like, it's very similar, like texture and frequency. So if you are getting your beautiful dress wet and then putting it in the dryer every single day, the texture of the, cause I mean, our hair is dead. Like the hair that is attached to my head is dead. It's like not living and breathing. So like, you know, just like the fabric that we're wearing. So it's like, it's going to get tattered. It's going to get like, just over and over and over in the dryer. So it's like not heat styling too much, doing heat protects when I need them. And also just like trying to like not overwash my hair. Now, yep. when I'm at the gymnastics place, like, you know, if I'm tumbling into like a pit where all the like children's feet have been like, that has increased the frequency of my hair washing. Yes, sure. Cause it's like, it's d- literally dirty. But like when I was doing hot yoga every day in Bikram, I would have my little hot yoga towel. I would put my head only like on my yoga mat only, which was only mine and like only my towels. I don't think our sweat's really gross. I mean, there is, and there is some sebum in there, which is gorgeous. And if you are going to insist on washing your hair daily, I would do like a cleansing oil or like a hair story, new wash or like something that isn't ladle loaded with sulfates. Yeah. Have you tried switching to mostly like clean beauty? I don't use fragrance. Yeah. Period. Like I have stopped using one of my very favorite shampoos, which I don't want to bust out right now that I loved, even though it was amazing because of the fragrance and the non and the refusal to have transparency around what's in the fragrance. Yeah, I, I on skincare on I still use Byredo sprays, but if it if it is a cream or a shampoo or conditioner, anything that has like unfettered access to my body skin, if it says fragrance, if it says the word fragrance, it is a no. Yeah, well, it's hard because you just don't know what it is. You don't know yeah. what's in it. Well, I feel like the subject of sustainability has been so huge within like the beauty industry right now, but I feel like it's not necessarily even talking about ingredients. It's more talking about the plastic. And then like some companies are talking about like switching to entirely recycled plastics or like just different things. There's this company called Blue Land, which is not beauty products, but it's like cleaning products where I thought it was so brilliant because if you think about like if you buy um, a thing of like glass cleaner, I can't remember what the percentage is, but it's like 95% of it is water. Right. So we're shipping these huge things of like glass cleaner everywhere when it's mostly water. So basically this company has created, you get like this one bottle and you just keep refilling it. Oh, it's like full lane. And then you just take like, it's almost like a little Alka-Seltzer tab and then you put it in and it makes like a whole thing of like glass cleaner. I'm like, it's so smart because then 
when you go to the store or if you order from like online or something, you're not ordering a huge thing. You're just ordering like the little tablet to refill. Um, I feel like those are the types of things. Yes, innovation. So yes, innovation. Yes, innovation. <laughs> okay, so I want to be mindful of your time. I know that you earlier this year became Essie's first non-female brand ambassador. I, as a total nail fanatic, I'm so excited about that. When did you first get interested in nails and like, what is it about nails that you love? Well, really not to name drop, but who first really got me into nails was like a Miss Gigi Hadid because we became friends and we were hanging out and she had this like fierce nail art. And I was like, your nails are so cool. And she's like, why don't you have like a little baby nail art? And I was like, I don't know, because every time I try to paint my nails, it looks like someone who's never even like, it just looks like I've never painted my nails before. Very blotchy, very ugly, very not cute. Like I'm not great. When I was in hair school, when I was in manicuring and pedicuring station, there was four times a day. For like those two weeks. So I think the most you could get was like 48 manis or petties. I got 48 pedicures because I was so, well, no, I got one manicure and then 47 pedicures because that lady was so pissed off and her nails looked so bad. The teacher was like, girl, you can never do a manicure. Like if they can see the quality of like, cause I just have like a shaky hand. Your, I like couldn't do it. Your nail beds are so nice. Though. I'm like looking at your nails now. Thank you. <laughs> but so then like when Gigi was like, you should meet my friend May. She does my nails. And um, so then I met my friend May. Oh, and nails by May. Yes, nails by May. And so genius. she does my nails and like I, she's really like incorporated it more into my life. And like, she's become a really good friend and someone who like, I really look forward to seeing like every other week. So she's really like helped me create or like explore my creative side when it comes to nails. Yeah. Okay. So have you planned out like the next five or 10 years? Like where, where do you hope to be? Alive, thriving, a reigning gay Olympic Paris figure skating champ with my friend Elliot. And he's going to have to really like get to the gym and pump some iron so he can lift me up. Because even though he's like, five foot seven and like 112 pounds soaking wet. I do think it'd be really fun if we like threw everyone for a loop and like he was throwing me and lifting me, even though I'm like, you know, way bigger than him. I think it'd be really fun. Has NBC called you yet to be like a correspondent? Um, no, but also, you know what else I'm really about the Olympics is I, mean, I love the Olympics. But they're always on election years. I can't be too invested because I was just talking about this earlier. I wonder if me being so invested in, in like us repeating our team gold in 16 and just really making sure that Miss Allie Reason qualified for that individual all around final, which she so deserved. And yes, she did get silver. So clap for Allie. Yes. <laughs> I wasn't really realizing that we, uh, the impending duo of Trump, because I was like, yes, Olympics togetherness. Yes. We're it's winning. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. I just couldn't really focus on like the wellness of America when our girls, because you know what? I become the most blindly patriotic. It's during the Olympics. I really do. I am so loving and accepting of everyone until it comes time for women's team sports. And then I become, I really have actually had to check myself because like, I am just so in fuego for United States women's team sports, <laughs> like men's sports. I can be more like, yeah, I love gymnasts from other countries and like, yeah, soccer, whatever. But women's team sports, honey. Wow. They're so good. Is there like one true love over the other? Like, are you more into watching the gymnastics or watching figure skating? Mm-hmm. They're both so good. Yeah. <laughs> that would be like saying like, do you love like Venus or Serena more? In 98 and 2002, if we would have had the team figure skating competition, would Michelle Kwan be a, a gold medal, Olympic gold medal figure skater, winning figure skater? Because we didn't get team until 2014. And in order for us to know this, we would have had to go back and look at those competitions in those years. And then, because, you know, on the team thing, it's like the, the countries that are in the team event, it's like they all, like the, the pair short program, it's like whoever gets one, two, three, four, five, you get a certain amount of points. It's like Grand Prix and Mario Kart rules you know, for like how you get the points. So we really have to go back and figure that out. I wonder, I really wonder, 
we were kind of slaying it then. We had some fierce Paris people. We had some fierce individual people. I wonder, Michelle, I just am trying to figure out like how I can get Michelle Kwan like that Olympic gold medal because as you can see, if you've read the book, I'm not over it. Um, <laughs> she's over it. She's my friend now. I'm not over it. I know. I forever loved her. She's like an Asian American queen. <laughs> uh, she's like, well, yeah, she's an Asian American queen. She's also just like my queen. Everyone's like, well, what's your, like, what's your bucket list celebrity? I'm like, I'm sorry. It's over. I already did it. Like, I, it's like, there's literally, there is. Wait, have you met Beyonce? No, but like, I'm sorry. Like, Beyonce is Beyonce, but Michelle Kwan is my Beyonce. Like, before they were, like, I even know what, knew what Beyonce, like, could, <laughs> could or would be. And Michelle Kwan just, just like, literally Michelle Kwan. When I was at the VMAs, I got asked, if you could sandwich yourself between any two celebrities tonight, who would it be? And I was like, um, Michelle Kwan. And they're like, no, they have to, like, be here. I was like, oh. Can we invite her now? <laughs> <laughs> like, she's like, she's my, my, she's my person. Oh my gosh, I love that. Okay, so thank you so much. Is there anything that you want to share with our audience? Any sort of shameless plugs or anything? Well, the book's out now, and I do think that if you're still listening to this to this episode with me, and it's because if it's because you're like in, have been interested in the book, I do feel like from a press perspective, a lot of the headlines that have been associated with this book are like, you know, Queer Eye Star comes out about HIV diagnosis and, and these other things that have come out about that have been really difficult for me to to come to the decision to to talk about, and they have been you know things that that you know cause me a lot of you know anguish, grief, whatever, but also. This book is joyful and it is really written in my, and it is my voice. It is my story. It is, it is my narrative that I got to create and pour over and pour myself into. And it does cover the tough things that I've been through in my life, but it really is a celebration of everything that I've been through to be to where I am now. And it really is a testament to the fact that like who you see on Queer Eye, that is who I am. I do love to talk about haircuts. I do love to talk about eyebrows. I do want to talk about contour and corrective color and, and how we can incorporate meditation into our self-care and beauty routines but I'm also someone who is deeply passionate about politics and about the well-being of our of marginalized people and the well-being of LGBTQ plus people and non-binary people. And it is a fun book. It is a hard book, but it's fun. And you, someone asked like, you know, what do you want people to take from this book? And I, like, without missing a beat, it was like joy. Like I want people to take joy because life is joyful. And I think that like being able to have the opportunity to experience life is painful. It is joyful. It is tragic. It is jubilant. It is, it is a cacophony of like opposites. And that is what kind of life is. And I think that really the path is like finding the balance in all of it, which is like, now you don't really have to read the book. Cause that's kind of the crux of it. I'm just kidding. The crux really is like, if you knew everything there was to know about me, would you love me anymore? I think that is a much more fun question than it sounds. So I hope yeah. people read that. No, I a hundred percent agree. It does feel joyful. And I read every single word of it in your voice. Like it truly is your voice. And I just have to say to you, you are truly like this ray of sunshine, just an inspiration. And when everyone in our office found out that you were coming, like people are so excited. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Right, I love Allure and I love everything Allure has for beauty oh, too. You. So great. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks everyone. Bye. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Jonathan Van Ness. I love that his reminder to people is that his message is ultimately about joy because that's truly what I think of when I think of him. So everyone go out and buy and read JVN's book, Over the Top. It's amazing. And don't forget to subscribe to the Allure podcast and give us five stars if you like this conversation.